Welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Marshall Fisher, co-author of The New Science of Retailing. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Marshall Fisher, co-author of The New Science of Retailing. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, Marshall Fisher, the UPS Professor of Operations and Information Management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, shares with us his insights on how to use analytics to improve an organization's supply chain performance in a way that ultimately enhances the bottom line. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Marshall Fisher, co-author of The New Science of Retailing, How Analytics Are Transforming the (coughs) Supply Chain and Improving Performance. Marshall is the UPS Professor of Operations and Information Management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business and co-director of the Fishman Davidson Center for Service and Operations Management. Marshall, welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thank you, Nathan. Marshall, I'm thrilled to have you on our show. In my career, I do a lot of work with what I call enterprise asset management, which means I get to work very closely with the supply chain management members of our team. And so I found your book to be absolutely fascinating. And again, I am thrilled to have you join me on the show this evening. Good. Happy to be here. Well, Marshall, to start out with, In the very beginning of the new science of retailing, you highlight the fact that analysts are starting to pay more attention to both the valuation and to the dynamics of a company's inventories, more so than what they've done in the past. I was wondering if you could describe for our audience the impact this is having on companies and what, if any, actions leaders should be taking in response to the heightened scrutiny. Well, it's um, it's an interesting question. I think um, analysts are gradually uh, intensifying the degree to which they look at inventory, and maybe more importantly, the uh, sophistication with which they look at inventory. Yes. So you could you could take the most common metric, uh, which is inventory turns. Um, they've added to that the fact that inventory. Um, has a cost of carrying it. It's an investment. You want to reap a return on that investment. What's the return? Is it supports sales, uh, which earn a gross margin. So the more sophisticated metric, which both retailers and analysts look at, is called um, 
gross margin return on inventory investment. It's the gross margin that a company earns in any period, like a quarter or a year, divided by their average inventory. Um, now, that said, I, I don't know if the analysts' increasing awareness and sophistication in looking at inventory, uh, which has been happening rather gradually, I would say, has had a precipitous change in the way retailers think about inventory because uh, they've always uh, cared about inventory. It's their biggest asset. It's an illiquid asset. And if you have too much of it um, invested in inventory, you can run out of cash and go bankrupt, which uh, is not a good thing. Certainly. <laughs> and in this economy, I would say over the last two years, retailers – to the extent that there's a balance point on yes. inventory, you want you don't want too little because you miss sales and you walk business that came in the door of the store looking to buy something, and you don't want to have too much because it doesn't sell and you have to get rid of it at a deep discount. That needle in retailers' minds is tipped much more towards let's be sure we don't have too much. Okay. Uh, so we'll miss some sales, but we don't want to be over-invested in inventory. So that's the current thinking about inventory, I would say. Okay. Heavily influenced by the economy. I was going to say that makes, I think, great sense to me anyway, given the current economic conditions and the lack of propensity of people to spend money right now at this point. Yeah. Yes. Now, Marshall, something that's always seemed to be rather problematic to me are forecasts. And I know we rely on forecasts a lot for a whole host of things, but they have always seemed to be problematic because of the inherent inaccuracies with assumptions. The inability to perfectly model anything means that the equations themselves we're using to make forecasts uh, have some inaccuracies themselves. So those all translates then into errors and in predictions. What can business leaders do to improve on their forecasting capabilities? Um, it's interesting. The reason you forecast demand is to have supply in the store so that when someone walks in to buy the product, it's available to them and mm -hmm. can complete their shopping mission and you can complete the sale. So I think the first thing to realize is that forecasts are one of three tools that you need to use together to accomplish that goal of having supply in the store when the customer walks in the door to buy it. Uh, so the ideal thing is if you could perfectly predict exactly who's going to walk through the door of each and every store and what they want, you could have all that product show up in the morning and have sold it at the end of the day. Obviously, <clears throat> that level of clairvoyance, we're a long ways from that. Uh, so you've got two other tools at your disposal. The other one of them is uh, supply chain flexibility. Okay. Uh, the ability of the supply chain to quickly resupply products, and then the third element is just inventory. Uh, so in inventory is kind of the residual after you've done your best job on forecast accuracy and a flexible supply chain. Then you got to have enough inventory to cover the margin of error in the forecast. Um, so that's point one. Forecast is one of three ingredients that have to be used in a uh, well-coordinated way. Yes. Uh, point two 
is you need to think about the life cycle of a product and what what do you know when. You need to start to forecast a product before you introduce it. Um, and how do retailers do that is usually you get a bunch of uh, a group of buyers together mm-hmm. and they think about how, how is this product going to sell and come up with a number. In my experience, those forecasts are uh, in- incredibly inaccurate. Uh, easily 100% error. You think something's going to sell 10,000 and it might sell 20,000 and it might sell close to zero. That That's the reality. Okay. Um, but what's interesting is after just seeing a little bit of sales, a little bit of, um, let's say, votes from the customer on whether they like the product or not, uh, we've been able to improve the accuracy of that forecast to uh, um, margin error of maybe plus or minus 10%. Oh. So in my experience, it's almost hopeless to anguish over getting the initial forecast right. Get it as right as you can, but know it's going to be wrong and then be have the flexible supply chain that you can quickly react and chase demand once the product starts to sell. So I guess the, answer, the short answer to your question what can you do to improve forecast yeah. accuracy is to take advantage of early sales data um, and analyze that to improve forecasts. Marshall, I'd like to probe a bit more on the concept of the flexible supply chain, which I found to be absolutely fascinating when I read your book. Good. Would you describe for our audience what you mean by a flexible supply chain and then – Tell them a little bit about the benefits of having that agility. So um, what we mean by a flexible supply chain, <clears throat> come back to this example of an item when you thought was going to sell 10000 for the season. Let's say it's a fashion apparel product. Mm-hmm. But the reality, you know in your heart of heart, because you've done this season after season, is that maybe it'll sell 20000 or maybe it will sell close. It'll only sell 5000 Flexibility would be uh, a supply chain that would let you take an initial position on that item that's conservatively low, maybe buy one or two thousand of it. That bounds your downside risk. If the thing bombs, uh, you haven't had much exposure. If it sells as you predicted or better, then the what you want the supply chain to be able to do is quickly resupply that item as it sells, as it proves itself in the marketplace. So the ability to have a short lead time is usually what people think about with flexibility. You need one other uh, capability as well, is that you can supply small quantities of the item a little at a time. So it doesn't do any good to have a short lead time if your minimum batch size is is 10,000 units, because what you really want to do is have a few hundred units come in watch some sales some more, have, uh, have an additional small supply come in. So basically, uh, supply the item as it sells. Uh, that's the way to stay in stock and avoid the inventory risk of overstock. Marshall, what capabilities does an organization need to have and, and what steps do they need to take in order to develop a flexible supply chain? Um, that is a complex question, which I would urge everyone to read the book uh, to fully understand. 
But if we think about um, what are the ingredients of a flexible supply chain, it's short lead time and the ability to produce in small quantities as need, if needed, or to economically produce in whatever quantity the market demands. Um, so the first thing you need to do is uh, to produce in small quantities is to enable a small batch size. There's lots of things that require a big batch size, so heavy production equipment that requires a long setup time, so you have to produce a lot. Mm-hmm. In apparel, <clears throat> they usually uh, cut fabric in layers of, uh, of 50 layers of cloth uh, because that's more efficient for cutting the fabric, uh, which means your batch size is 50 of, of one style and one color and one size, uh, which might be too much uh, for what you need for flexibility. So a way around that is to use a laser to uh, flexibly cut. You need to think about uh, where you decouple, where you can safely decouple the supply chain with inventory. Uh, so we come back to apparel again. Um, take The long lead time is producing and dyeing fabric. Mm-hmm. But Usually, you find that the total amount of fabric you need for the season is much more predictable than how much you'll need of one style and one size in one store in Iowa someplace. So you can afford to keep inventory of fabric, uh, decouple the supply chain at the fabric or maybe the dyed fabric in popular colors, and then quickly cut and sew that um, as the market requires. Okay. Okay, so it's really looking for a strategic points to do the decoupling at. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, a good example would be Dell, right? So the oh. Dell has become famous for you call them up and you tell them what kind of a computer you want, and if you pay enough for express shipping, it shows up at your doorstep the next day. Right. Uh, how can they produce a computer so quickly? Well, the answer is they keep inventory of all the components that go into that computer. Uh, it takes about three minutes to assemble the computer, so all they're doing is pulling those components off the shelf and putting them into the computer. Predicting demand for any particular computer might be very challenging, but a, com- a component which is shared across lots of computers, that's very predictable. So you find the point in the supply chain where things become predictable, and that's where you keep your inventory. I was going to say, it would strike me that keyboards and... Uh the mouse would be highly predictable in that case because every computer uses those. Yes, exactly. You yeah. got it. Okay. Now, Marshall, how does a, an organization's leader determine how much flexibility they need to build into their supply chain? Well, we would circle back uh, to your question about forecasting. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the most important thing to do in the forecasting function is to record what you predicted when – uh, and then record what actually happened so that you can measure the accuracy of the forecast. So a way to put that is that the most important thing in the forecasting process is not to forecast as accurately as possible, but to forecast the accuracy of the forecast. Let me say that again, because 
if you're predicting you're going to sell 10,000, mm-hmm. it's very important to know what's the likely range uh, of errors around that forecast. If you know that based on other items you've predicted, that typically that forecast of 10,000 is correct, plus or minus 10%, uh, then you don't need a lot of flexibility. You're going to be somewhere in that window of 9,000 to 11,000 units. On the other hand, take a different item that um, where the range of errors has been much bigger, 50 to 100%, then you need a lot of flexibility because you've got to be able to move within a wide range of um, of possible outcomes, and you and you don't know what's going to happen until the item starts to sell. Oh, that make that makes good sense to me. It does. Mm-hmm. Now, I was also wondering. It, it appeared to me that the flexible supply chain does rely significantly on forecasting and a bit of what I call supply chain push, rather than. Uh, demand or consumption pull that I think of in terms of like lean manufacturing processes? Right. I was wondering what makes the flexible supply chain outperform one that is more pull focused? Um, I would um, I would actually disagree with you on that point. I think of a okay. supply chain as one that is pull because it's a supply chain that can uh, supply an item as it's selling. So the, the ideal flexible supply chain would ship to the store today what you sold yesterday. Okay. Okay. To me, that's pull. Yes. Yeah, I, I think of that as pull also in, in the terms of like lean manufacturing. Is right. I use it and then I demand another one to come in and replace that's right. it. That's right. The only uh, place it becomes push is inherently long lead time items. Like with apparel, it would be would be fabric, production of fabric. Okay. And this decouple point I talked about is sometimes called the push-pull boundary. So if you think about any supply chain, no matter how lean and pull it is, as you move upstream in that supply chain, eventually it becomes push. Mm-hmm. So some auto companies are famous for pull, but they're not going to mine iron ore and smelt it and produce steel in pull mode. Those upstream heavy processes have to be pushed. Uh, where you switch from push to pull, the push-pull boundary or decoupling, ends up being a really critical decision in designing a supply chain. Okay. Now, Marshall, in The New Science of Retailing, you dedicated a chapter to aligning an organization's supply chain operations with its overarching business goals, which I really appreciated because we talk about that all the time on the Strategy uh-huh. Driven website. Good. I was wondering if you could share with us briefly some of the key implementing principles that you would recommend leaders take in order to help drive the alignment between the supply chain and the organization's goals? I would probably focus on, on one important principle, which is the relative importance for a retailer of responsiveness and ability to react to the market as opposed to achieving a high degree of cost efficiency. So if you look at a supply chain, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to, you're going to see a whole a slew of, of 
points where you have to make a choice between slow and cheap versus fast and expensive. Uh, example, you're producing in China. You can, you can carry the product by boat uh, or by air. Boat is slow and cheap. Air is fast and expensive. Or even the decision, do you produce in China or do you produce in Philadelphia, is a choice between, if you're supplying the U.S. market, is a choice between uh, slow and inexpensive, that's China, or fast uh, but expensive, that's Philadelphia. So I think the relative riskiness of the retailer's product portfolio uh, is what drives that. So you take fashion apparel, it's going to lead you, ought to lead you, to a supply chain that's flexible, and more often than not, you choose fast and expensive over slow and cheap. <clears throat> a product that might be more uh, more basic, such as food, mm-hmm. um, cost efficiency is going to be relatively more important, and whereas demand is pretty predictable, and therefore um, you don't have to worry so much about flexibility. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes good sense to me too. <laughs> now, Marshall, I hear and and I read a lot, and in my line of work, I actually deal a lot with new technologies, but also with new technologies that could help supply chain management programs, such as enterprise resource planning systems or RFID tags. What are some of the key factors executives should consider when they're making decisions regarding which technologies they should pursue for their organizations? Um, I think they need to separate technology investments into those that you can make a business case for Mm -hmm. and those that you really have to view uh, as an option where the investment positions you to learn about the technology and um, uh, be prepared to be ahead of the pack if that technology takes off. I think an example would be a handful of retailers, Walmart and Metro for sure, Mm -hmm. that have been pushing RFID. I don't think the business case is there for RFID now from everything I read and see and hear from talking to retailers. It probably will be there someday. So in my opinion, I think what Metro and Walmart are doing by by uh, having programs with RFID early yes. is preserving their option value so that they can jump on that technology when and if it takes off. So the uh, technology budget, most of it, much of it, uh, has to have a benefit case and you have to make the business case. But you need to think about what, first of all, what fraction of, of your technology budget is really an investment with, for which you can't yet make the business case, but you want to invest in it to preserve the option value, um, uh, that, to, that would give you the option to quickly adopt that technology if it takes off. It sounds to me very much like buying an, an option if it's on a commodity product. In yes. this case, it's simply a technology and a capability. Yes, it's a technology and a capability. Yes, outstanding. Well, Marshall, I want to thank you not only for taking your time 
to be with me tonight, but for sharing your insights with our audience on how to use analytics to improve an organization's supply chain effectiveness and really ultimately its bottom line. I do want to mention to our audience that the discussion you and I have had tonight really just barely scratches the surface of the phenomenal information that you present in your book and that not only that, but what I really appreciated about your book was that it's filled with example process illustrations and data tables that really bring all of the concepts to life. And, and by looking at those, you can actually see you know, very graphically, this is what the concept is trying to convey and this is how it would work in practice. So I hope our listeners will pick up a copy of The New Science of Retailing and more importantly, I hope they'll then apply the principles and practices that you've described so to help improve their organization's supply chain. So, Marshall, thank you again for joining us. Nathan, it was my great pleasure to talk with you, and I thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Marshall Fisher for being with us today and sharing his insights on how to use analytics to improve supply chain effectiveness and ultimately enhance the bottom line. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider voting for us on Podcast Alley and visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com. You can find more information about Marshall Fisher and The New Science of Retailing at www.thenewscienceofretailing.com. Until next time, so long.